morning, church family. Turn to your neighbor and say, God is so good. Turn to your other neighbor and say, God is so good to me. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we're, we're continuing in our journey through Ephesians, which we began in March. And uh, we are now towards the latter part of chapter 5, and we're going to launch into chapter 6 as well this morning. And so what I want to do is I want us to um, think about the three core relationships that uh, we have within the body of Christ. If you remember, uh, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians was really what we believe as a church family, what we believe, and this was Paul writing to the Ephesians about what they believe, beginning with the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ and leading on to how we have salvation in Christ and then leading on to the fact that the mystery of Christ is that salvation is for all, not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. And then in chapter four, it turns from belief to behavior, from doctrine to duty, from faith to practice. And so now in chapter 4, it talks about how we as Christians are to relate to one another within the body of Christ. And then chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 is, how do we as Christians relate to those in the world, those who are outside of the body of Christ? And then here we begin in chapter 5, verse 21, and we're going to look at the three core relationships that we have within the body of Christ, and these are personal relationships. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And uh, as you're standing, I just want to remind you that next week is baptism week, so you don't want to miss that. Uh, I'll be up there getting wet with about six other folks. It'll be great, but we'll celebrate together as a church family baptism Sunday next Sunday. And then, of course, we have our congregational meeting that afternoon, and then we have a big cookout. So it'll be a great time in the house of the Lord here at Ashley River next Sunday. But today we're going to have fun because we're going to read the word of God. And we're going to study it together. Uh, verses 21 and following. I'll just read the first section and then we'll sit down and then we'll cover the other two relationships after that. Verse 21 reads this way. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit, should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Father, this is your word. We pray that you will illumine our hearts to its truth this morning as we study it together 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to look at the three core relationships within the bride of Christ. And we begin with the marital relationship. And that is the relationship between wives and husbands. But then we'll move on and we'll also talk about the relationship, the parental and child relationship between the children and the parents. And then, of course, we look at the third relationship uh, specific to slaves and masters as we move into chapter 6. And so let me just begin by saying that wives and husbands is the first core relationship. Let me make it very clear that marriage is God's idea. It is begun by God. It was instituted at his creation. In fact, in Adam, uh, he, I asked Adam to read because it was about himself. I mean, my goodness, why not, right? But the point is, is that the marriage institution appears on page two of your Bible. Page two, after the creation of the universe. So it is immensely important to God. And marriage is defined in the Bible as one man and one woman bound together for life in holy communion. That is what marriage is. Whatever culture says today is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that marriage is between a woman and man. It was instituted by God at creation and it was confirmed by Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 19. In fact, Jesus said these words, At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Of course, that verse is also repeated for us at the latter part of this chapter in Ephesians. It was repeated to us in Genesis chapter 2. If we look around at marriage today, I don't know if you were around when you heard some statistics like 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And the more sobering uh, attribute or statistic was that it was no better in the church. Well, recent reports have kind of debunked that previous study by Barna Research. Barna joined up with another person and found that, in fact, today in America, in the last couple of years this study was done, that really 33% of marriages end in divorce, not 50%. But that's still high. But the good news is this, is that those marriages, those people who are committed to a local church and are actively involved in that local church, they have 35% less chance of divorce than the general public. And in fact, it's down to 21%, still high, but vastly below the statistic for the general public. And so we think about that and we think about why is it that Christians divorce less than non-Christians. There are four keys in this passage that I want us to point to. First, there are four ways in which love is manifested in the marriage relationship. Number one, love surrenders. Love surrenders. Look at what it says there in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Surrender is mutual. Surrender is mutual, one to another, out of reverence for Christ. Surrender is also compelled by our reverence for Christ, who is the quintessential model of service. I was mentioning in Sunday school this morning how on the night before he was betrayed and crucified, Jesus' disciples were arguing about who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus 
demonstrated what greatness in the kingdom of heaven looks like by washing their feet. Service leadership, servant leadership is the key to love. It's a love that surrenders. But the secondly, love submits. Look at what it says there in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The word submit there is a hot button topic or word for today's society. Nobody wants to submit to anybody else. But the word in the, uh, in the Greek here is hupotasso. Hupotasso is a passive middle voice verb. And what that means is, is that the wife willingly and voluntarily submits out of respect for the function of the husband. That is what hupotasso literally means. And it says this as to the Lord. So wives who wouldn't, what believing wife would not submit to Jesus Christ in the same way you submit to your husband because he has been ordained for that purpose. You know, this command comes directly out of Genesis chapter 3. After Genesis chapter 2, where Adam read, where we talk about how the woman was taken out of man, she is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, the two shall become one. Then in Genesis 3, of course, we see the temptation and the fall. And of course, Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam was standing there with her. She took some of the fruit. She took a bite. And then she handed it to Adam, who himself took a bite. Here's a question for you. Who did God give the prohibition to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He gave it to Adam. He didn't give it to Eve because Eve hadn't even been created yet. It's interesting when Eve was having her conversation with the serpent, she said, you can't even touch the tree. God never said you, could try, you couldn't touch the tree. It was almost like Adam was trying to tell her, don't even go near it. Don't even touch it. But then he was with her. So we see the entire New Testament, where does the sin of all humanity, which happened at the fall, where is it, where is it placed? Squarely on the shoulders of Adam. Adam has the high responsibility. But we see in Genesis 3.16 how this was instituted. In 3.16 of Genesis, it says this, God is placing his curse on Eve, and he says this, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. All you moms out there, say out loud, thanks, Eve. Okay? But then he goes on to say, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. You see, this is the fallen world. And so now God has to install civilian order within the family. And he does so by placing Adam as the responsible head and Eve as the submissive wife. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, it says this, The head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Even Christ submits, folks. It's out of order. It's out of a proper understanding of the order that is there. Harry S. Truman, when he first became president, was known for putting a plaque on his desk in the Oval Office. And the plaque read this, the buck stops here. The point is, is that Harry Truman was the ultimate decision maker. There has to be one ultimate person. How many people in the, in the congregation this morning know of a company that's run by two CEOs? They're not. They're run by one CEO. There is one coach 
for every team. There can't be two coaches. And that's how God ordered it after the fall. But wives have an opportunity. Even if you are married to an unbelieving spouse, Peter encourages wives to win over their husbands through their faith. So love surrenders, love submits, but then love sacrifices. Look at what it says there in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, it would have been easy for me to start with this one and then go back to the submission of the wife. Because if you think about it, what is the husband's responsibility? He is to lay down his life for his wife. That is what Jesus did at the cross. I want us to draw a comparison here. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 2 when God caused Adam to fall asleep? To fall asleep is a euphemism of death. And when he fell asleep, where did God draw out Eve? He drew out the bride of Adam from his side. In many of our versions of scripture, it will say a rib, but most versions that are uh, true to the Hebrew say just out of his side. He took a piece out of Adam's side and he formed Eve. I want us to fast forward to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave up the ghost and he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And as he hung there, he had died. Just like Adam was fallen asleep, Jesus Christ died for a time. And then the Roman centurion poked into his side with the spear, outflowing water mixed with blood. It was at that moment that the bride of Christ was born. Do you see the picture of Adam was ultimately to be fulfilled in the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? That is the powerful sacrifice of love. And then fourthly, love sanctifies Look at what it says there in verses 26 and following. He is to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but what? Holy and blameless. Let me direct our attention back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. What does it say? It says that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be what? To be holy and blameless. God determined from the very beginning that his church, his bride, would be holy and blameless before him. So love sanctifies. Number two, it is cleansed through the water and the word. That represents purity and the word is truth. Love her as his own body, it says, that the husband is to love his wife as his own body. Well, what person doesn't take care of their own body? They feed it, they care for it, they protect it. And that is what the husband is to do for his wife and for his whole family. Husbands are to lead. We need real men in America today. We need real men to step up and be leaders in their homes. We don't need men to be worried about what they look at like in a mirror. We need men who are willing to step up and lead by service to their families. That's what we need. And that's what God has called for men to be. That we are to be leaders in the household. That we are to sacrifice ourselves for our family. That we are to provide. That we are to protect. That we are to encourage. That we are to discipline. And ultimately, we are to lay down our lives in service to our families. 
What family wouldn't want to serve a man who is willing to lay down his life for them? That is what God's call is to all of us. The marriage relationship results in a radiant church. Did you see that? To present her to himself, in verse 27, as a radiant church. Isn't that beautiful? A radiant church. You realize that the marriage relationship is designed to be a light to the world. It is to reflect the beautiful unity of the Trinity. And so the marriage relationship is to be the light of Christ to the world. So that's the first relationship. The second one is between children and their parents. Children and their parents. Let's pick up in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Let's pause right there. So now he's moving to this second relationship between children and their parents. Children are to obey their parents because it is right. Now, how many of you parents wish your kids didn't go to children's church this morning? See, we want our children to obey us. In fact, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12 tells uh, that tells us it's one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your mother and father so that it will go well with you in the land the Lord is giving to you. The family unit is being attacked in culture today. But the family unit is the very foundational building block of any strong society. It is the key to a strong society. And in fact, if I were to give some advice to parents this morning as a parent whose now children have grown, you have to think of your house as a solar system. The solar system. At the center of the solar system is what? The sun. The sun represents Jesus Christ. When the sun, Jesus Christ, is at the center of your household, then everything revolves around him. Ecclesiastes would tell us a cord of three strands is not easily broken. The third strand in any marriage relationship is the husband, the wife, and Jesus Christ. He is the center. He is the sun. Everything should revolve around Jesus Christ in your home. And then parents, what are you? You are the planets. You are the planets. You rotate around the sun. Your life should be a reflection of Jesus Christ. Your life should revolve around his will and his purposes for your family. And then children, guess what you are? You're the moon. You revolve around the parents, the planets. That's the way it should be. Many families today, their children call the shots. That's not how it's designed by God. God wants the children to be in revolution around the parents because when the parents are in revolution around Jesus Christ, then it all works together. And so we got to think of it as the solar system. And then it's interesting. I don't know if you picked up on this, but Paul actually calls out the fathers here. Notice he doesn't address specifically the moms. He talks about the fathers. He says there in chapter um, in chapter 6, verse 4, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. 
Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. You know, in Proverbs 22, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We are to bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read these words, Impress these commandments on your children when you go away and when you come home, talk about them. And when you rise and when you go to bed, talk about them. Raise up your children in the admonition of the Lord. Love is also expressed through discipline. In Proverbs 13, 24, it says, He who spares the rod hates his son. You understand the rod there is not necessarily meant to be a real rod. It is meant to be a euphemism for actually disciplining them because discipline is important in the training and instruction of children. You know, in the recent statistics, you won't believe this, but we ask ourselves, why fathers? 33% of all children in the United States live in fatherless homes. And despite all the TV dad portrayals, listen to these statistics about the impact of fathers on their children. 85% of children without, with absent fathers get involved in crime. 85%. 70% of children of fatherless homes have dropped out of high school. 63% of all suicides among youth are from fatherless homes. Children living in fatherless homes are four times more apt to live in poverty the rest of their life. Girls raised in fatherless homes are eight times more likely to get pregnant as a teenager. 85% of all children living without a father experience behavioral disorder. And here's the good news. Teenagers with a positive and nurturing father are 80% less apt to go to prison. Now, these statistics are not meant to make the heroes called single moms feel less about themselves because they are the heroes in our society today. What I'm really trying to draw attention to is the fathers who need to step up and be men in their families. That's what the church is designed to do, and that's what we are called to do, to be fathers to our children. So we learn that mothers and fathers are to join this marital relationship to reflect the light of Christ, that parents and children are to be the building block of society, and then thirdly, we look at slaves and masters. Let's continue reading there in chapter 5, verse I mean chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So we see here that Paul is addressing slaves and masters, the third core relationship within the body of Christ. Let's remember, Paul is talking to believing slaves and believing masters. 
Now, let me be clear. Nowhere in the Bible does it condone slavery. It addresses slavery because it was a common practice in that day, but it does not condone slavery. When God looked down from heaven and saw his people enslaved in Egypt, he moved and he sent a deliverer called Moses. In first century Rome, as many as 50% of the population were enslaved, if you can believe it. 50% of the population of Rome during Jesus' day were enslaved. Slave trading is labeled in the Bible as an abominable sin to God. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, we read these words, We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So the Bible specifically calls out slave trading as an abominable sin. Our nation has a black mark on it for the slavery that it indulged for many, many years. And I'm here to tell you that slavery is evil in the eyes of God. Paul the Apostle would write to Philemon. You want to read a short letter in the New Testament? Read Philemon. It's only one chapter, but he encouraged Philemon, even implored him to treat Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother in Christ. But you know, slavery is not something of the past. The recent statistics are staggering. Of latest count, there are approximately 49.6 million people in the world today serving as slaves. 49.6 million people. If you think about that, you start to wonder, where is this happening? What's going on? I recently received a book called The Hard Road Out about a North Korean woman who sacrificed everything, left her father on his deathbed to flee North Korea. The dictatorship, the totalitarian rule of Kim Jong-un. And she, le she left the country, went into China to find asylum, was then raped and then had a child by that rapist, and then she was sent back to North Korea. After many more years of suffering and a famine, she then fled the country yet again, this time tracing her way back to her son, picking him up, and then taking a long trek through the Gobi Desert to get freedom in Mongolia. She is currently in England right now, and she just wrote, wrote this book, The Hard Road Out. For many of us in America, we don't even understand this kind of stuff. But slavery is happening in this world, even as I speak. Human trafficking is another word for it. And a movie just recently came out this past weekend called uh, Freedom, Sound of Freedom, starring Jim Caviezel. But you know, this choir just sang Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace was written by John Newton, who himself, you may not know this, but John Newton himself was a slave. He was a slave. 
And then he was rescued, and then he himself became a slave trader. He would operate the ships that his father ran, and he would bring slaves over into Europe from Africa. And he himself was overcome by a shipwreck, and he then started to think about what the meaning of his life was. And in 1773, John Newton penned the words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It would take 60 years before those lyrics were set to music by an American musician. And now it has become one of the great spiritual gospel songs that has been sung more than 10 million times every year since it came out. It is an amazing song of redemption. John Newton, a slave trader, turned to Jesus Christ, and then he then spent the rest of his life influencing a man named William Wilberforce, a man who sat with Parliament in Britain to abolish slavery once and for all. We sing that song because it means that we all have salvation and freedom in Christ. Well, Paul gives three reminders to these slaves. He says, first, obey your masters, just as you would obey Christ. Sound familiar? Women, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents as unto the Lord. Slaves, obey your masters as unto the Lord. And then secondly, persevere. Persevere. He says there, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. You know, some of the great spiritual gospels, southern gospel songs that we love to sing, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, were penned by slaves. How about Go Down Moses? How about this one that we just sang, Amazing Grace? Some of the great songs of deliverance come because of slavery. And then there's perspective. You have to have a perspective. Notice what he says there, that there is a reward, that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. The eternal freedom that all of us will experience when we get to the other side is something we will never be able to fully grasp. But it's amazing, the freedom that is there. And so we as Christians are to embrace one another, not to look down on one another, but to see each other and lift us all up because that is what the heart of Christ is. And then he addresses the masters. He says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. How is that? Well, with respect, with reverence, and with sincere hearts. This is what Paul was telling Philemon. Treat Onesimus with respect. Love him as a brother. And then he goes on to say, do not threaten them, for we are all servants of Jesus Christ. We are servants of the great master himself, Jesus. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul would pen these words. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one. Every single human being that you have ever met on this earth is created in the image of Almighty God. And therefore, they have infinite value, 
infinite worth and they matter to him. He loves them and our job is to love them as Christ loves the church, as Christ loves the world. For God sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. They will be freed from the shackles of sin. They will be freed from the devastation of this world. They will be ushered into heaven once and for all, for all time, for eternity. Praise God. 10,000 years. It's amazing. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when first begun. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the institution of marriage, the gift of children, and the obedience that we learn in Jesus Christ to be service-oriented toward our fellow believers within the body. Oh, Father, Ashley River, wants to worship you in spirit and in truth because you are the great Savior. You are God in the flesh, loving a hurting world. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for all that you have done. Thank you for all that you are doing. Thank you for all that you will do because one day you will come. Every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess Jesus as Lord, praise God and hallelujah. What a Savior. And we pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Today is a time of invitation. As we sing this closing hymn, I'm going to invite you, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, today is an opportunity for you to do that. While we're singing this hymn, you come forward, and I want to have a conversation with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you want to join our church, if you want to join Ashley River Baptist Church, this is the time that you would come and respond and join our fellowship of faith. And then finally, if you have, if you're wrestling, maybe you're a husband or a wife and you feel like you need to do a little bit more to build into that relationship. Maybe you are a parent or a child and you need to do a little more to build into that relationship. Whether you have issues at workplace or in the neighborhood or in the community, Here's an opportunity for you to get right with God and say, Lord, work with me. Work on my heart. Help me to be a better light for Jesus Christ. So as we stand and as we sing this hymn of invitation, you respond and you come.